Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of The Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam, and I'm also, also excited about how big of a tent we have today. The topic is self-explanatory, pop culture franchises that went insanely off the rails. Pop culture from movies to books to comics that you love that then had sequels and prequels and other adaptations that you probably didn't know about that mutated them in hilarious ways. And my hilarious guests are Cracked Editors Christy Harrison and Syriac Lamar. They, along with many excellent freelance writers, have delved into the wide world of... Uh, For example, 101 Dalmatians sequels about nuclear weapons. Very fun. And when I said the tent is big today, I mean the pop culture that we're getting into. It's 100% landmark stuff. You have heard of every single thing we're going to talk about today. The movies, the shows, the characters. Um, With the movies alone, there's this new Earwolf show called Unspooled, where they're going through the AFI Top 100 American Films. It's very cool. And that list is on my mind, so I went and checked. We talk about two of the movies in the top seven of that list of all-time movies ever on today's Cracked Podcast. It's really exciting and really uh, freaky. It's going to be a good time. Two more small notes before we dive in. One is that there are some very, very small audio dropouts on this one with the phone. It's just kind of a thing. Uh, We hope you don't mind, and uh, we also hope you know that's not being caused by your player or the headphones you're using or your uh, podcasting servant. How do you hear this? I don't know. Anyway, our uh, our brilliant editor made sure the few blips, very, very few of them, uh, they don't interrupt the material. They don't make it actually hard to understand anything. They're just kind of there. Um, Sorry about that. I think it's still a great show and very, very listenable. That's note one. Also, note two is that this episode has a lot of Garfield stuff up top, and you are welcome. There you go. Now, please sit back or sit up in the Jim Davis's Garfield branded chair that your podcasting servant uh, wheeled out for you to sit in. Either way, enjoy this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Christy Harrison and Syriac Lamar. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. Let's get into the thing today, which is franchises that went off the rails completely, which I I think Christy picked out this topic initially, and and it's something that I think we all have ones that we like from our own childhood or even just watching things as adults. Like Going into this, I was trying to remember when it was that maybe I started realizing as someone who consumes stuff that people are behind it. You know, there are people (laughs) writing it and making it and eventually a franchise can go into the hands of people who are either unqualified right. or very fun or something else. Or have a different vision for this thing that you grew up with and understood in a different way. And they have their own ideas about what it should look like and they do it and then you come back to it and it's not the same thing. I mean, I think we really are in the golden age of franchise filmmaking simply because you know people are going how many movies do people go to per year? I, you know, it's, it's, uh, there's streaming, there's Netflix, there's so many distractions when it comes to media. So you're basically getting these scenarios where studios are like, okay, what do we know that the people like? Oh, they will like 14 Transformers movies. We can just keep doing that. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, there's really an economic impetus behind a lot of this as well. That's a great point. I think the last wheel footnote of fully accurate 
stat that's updated, but the last stat I saw was that people see four movies a year on average in a theater. Yeah. So really? you're absolutely right. They are, I mean, if you take four movies a year and tape off one of those for Star Wars and tape off one of them for a Marvel movie or for more, Marvel. Yeah. Uh, that, that doesn't leave a lot, you know, then maybe they catch an Oscar movie and that's it. And and all, and the Star Wars and Marvel have trained us to honor the franchise, like to, to keep going along with it. I mean, you guys, not me. I'm not trained to do it. I'm not going. <laughs> but, but like, <laughs> as as a culture, we're now all on board with uh, watching Marvel movies until the day we die, somehow. And and speaking of expansive fictional universes that are beloved, the nation over and the world over, uh, Garfield. You know, oh, what a fun cat who's in the in the comics and in the funny pages. He's really great. And I think we have a couple different iterations of Garfield, which is such a perfectly merchandised thing. I think even as a kid, I started to realize that Garfield was a money-making machine. And Syriac, you'd picked out that there's a Garfield R&B album. In the early 90s, uh, there was, you know, the Garfield merchandising machine was in full gear, whirring and, you know, producing all of the... John Arbuckle-shaped tchotchkes one could want. Uh, and <laughs> one of the uh, ways that the Grand Garfield merchandising machine, uh, you know, one of the products of it was the Garfield R&B album, um, which was called Am I, uh, Am I Cool or What? And it actually has, you know, big names behind the album. There's Patti LaBelle, there's The Temptations, The Pointer Sisters, B.B. King, like actual real names singing... Um, Lou Rawls sings a song called Here Comes Garfield. It's it's basically, you know, very established, um, famous, uh, famous world-renowned musician singing songs about Garfield. And um, it's a trip. I, I don't know, like, again, it also speaks to the strength of what Garfield was in 1991. Um but uh, the best song on the album is Fat Is Where It's At. <laughs> we got to listen to some of the songs on a call, and I still can't understand it. Like, I don't understand why B.B. King um, and, in 1991 would make a song called Monday Morning Blues, parentheses, blues for Mr. G. Like, I, where, where did he get out of this? And where, who, what was the pitch? Who did they say this is for? Someone threw on the Garfield R&B album and they made love while listening to um, <laughs> lyrics about lasagna and gravy. Yeah, now we definitely can't play it on the air because it's far too erotic. Oh, can't do it. Can't do it. We can't. People are trying to drive and work out. We can't. Can't have that happen. <laughs> I've been trying to understand Garfield's initial appeal in the first place. Like I know that's become a big joke with everybody. Like, what is this guy? Why did we? Why were we obsessed with him in the '80s? And as a kid, I, I just I think I just thought, well, he likes lasagna and I like lasagna. That's where we're the same. Or he's got red hair and I've got red hair. So this is my guy. This is my <laughs> my character that I can relate to. <laughs> but I don't think I got much further than that. But why would you guys like Garfield? I mean, like, how, how could he possibly relate to you? I was probably a strange kid because I was super, super interested in comedy. So I was gobbling up any kind of joke book or thing like it I could. And one of them was newspaper comics. I was way, way into them as a kid. Like I was reading Dilbert when I was probably six or seven. And that's strange because you're nowhere near an office <laughs> job, you know? And I 
I racked up Garfield collections, and especially the early ones have some really solidly put together joke writing. It just it's not okay. like amazing a lot of the time, but it makes sense. And and also there were these like TV specials that were pretty good. So I was into Garfield. I can't imagine listening to an album of Garfield's R and B and blues. I actually also Garfield blues album really valid premise because he's full of the blues about many things. He doesn't like we we know exactly what he doesn't like and you turn it into songs. You know, makes sense. I think I have to bring up. Have you ever read the Garfield comic where Garfield kills an old woman? Oh my I'm not, god! I'm not no. even making this up. <laughs> It's. I'm about to. I'm about. To, we we definitely have written about this. Um, it was uh, in 1984. Jim Davis published a book called um, Garfield: His Nine Lives, and it was kind of. You know, it was actually kind of an ambitious comic. It was. Uh, I think I remember it was a hardcover where it was different um, art styles and you know Garfield throughout history. One of the uh, comics involved. Um, guys, I'm going to put it at the end of the doc. Um, one of the comics involved. Uh, Garfield uh, as a normal cat being possessed by uh, essentially some sort of eldritch feline force and <laughs> a kind of spectral cat and then being transported into a universe of howling panthers and volcanoes. And then when he wakes up from his you know encounter with the unknown, he is about to maul an old woman. I'm not even messing around. It is freaking nuts. <laughs> Oh my god, I'm looking at this link you just sent, and it's like those Sandman, Neil Gaiman comics, but Garfield. It's all kinds of styles and bizarre happenings. There's a a black spectral hand coming out of his food bowl. This is horrifying, and I love it. It's yeah, it's it's a trip, and like that's again, like when you want to talk about the Garfield merchandising machine, like they were throwing everything at the wall, man. Is this the main artist? Who you you said it was Jim Davis, right? Like, I, I mean, I guess he's not doing the art here, but he was spearheading this project. Uh, yeah, he was heading the project. Uh, the art is actually by I think the art was by other people. It looks like yes, it looks like it was by other people. I mean, I really do yes. appreciate that this is so much bigger and his ideas are bigger than what I thought they were that he's trying this and that it's insane um, is really yeah. impressive. This old lady in the panel, she's like horrifying looking. The pan, the, the lady's about to kill. She says, come play with mama. And like, she's got a bra strap hanging down. It's like gritty looking and she doesn't have her eyes visible. This is a very interesting um approach to Garfield. I also I feel like this and a lot of things we're going to look at today it speaks to the idea that capitalism is magic, right? This is something that creates <laughs> everything anyone could possibly want if they think there's a market for it sort of will exist, you know, because we have this bizarre like indie comic sort of approach to Garfield. And then also there's this article, Any Franchise Left to Its Own Devices Will Go Off the Rails is the title of it uh, by Jonathan Wojcik, Adam Kosky, and Chris Sutcliffe. And they bring up the franchise called Garfield's Pet Force, which started in a series of novels that started in 1998, where Garfield is a full-on superhero fighting kind of dark like beings, and he's in a parallel dimension ruled by John Arbuckle. And apparently Jim Davis keeps trying to relaunch this, too. Like, they finished the novels in 99. Then they did a CGI movie in 2009. Then they did an actual comic book in 2013. And so it seems like there is a Garfield comic, whether it's a newspaper strip or a superhero comic 
or this horrifically crazy indie comic for every kind of reader. Everyone's set. You like novels? There's a Garfield Pet Force novel. You're all good because uh, money's magic. It's great. It turns out that Garfield's Pet Force is like the ultimate realization of Jim Davis's Garfield vision. It's like, no, he <laughs> he meant he was meant to uh, become a superhero. And becoming a superhero seems kind of like the antithesis of Garfield because Garfield isn't about saving people. He's like the he's like the, you know, yeah. basically like the paragon of sloth. You know, that's what I think of when he, <laughs> you know, I think of Garfield. I don't think of. Garfield exerting himself in any way for justice or any other cause. Let's do like a left turn into some uh, non-comics kind of things. But of course, sticking to the magic of pets. Because uh, when we were putting this together, Christy, you said that you absolutely needed to talk about the Airbud world. <laughs> uh, the Airbud Extended <laughs> Film Universe, I think it's called. The A-B-E-C-U. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and the caveat that I have to say, I have not watched these movies myself but every night at the dinner table I'm gonna, I'm gonna say every couple of nights not even not every night <laughs> it somehow comes around that my girls want to talk about what went on with the air buddies movies <laughs> so like in the, so an airbud you know I think it's grounded in reality like uh, airbud is this Animal, a real animal who like went on, who went on the stupid pet tricks on David Letterman, and um, was a real animal who could do some cool tricks. And then he got to be in a movie, and um, and then they turned that into the franchise where this particular dog could do all these cool sport movies. They turned, they turned him into sport movies. The spinoff yeah. is his kids. His kids, like he, I don't think he talked, but again, I haven't watched the movies because it's a. They came out like in ninety seven, ninety eight, and I was already an adult. The kids can not only like talk and solve crimes, but they each have like their own little personality. And this is where my, my kids just think it's so funny because one of them is like, a, <laughs> like, they're all stereotypes. Like they all, each air buddy gets its own offensive stereotype and that's their oh, personality. No. So yeah, <laughs> one of them's like a little hippie and his name is, I don't know if it's Buddha or Buddha, but, you know, because it's Bud. So he's, his name's Buddha. One just likes to eat, and they call him Butterball. Um, one is, <laughs> like, um, Mudbud, and his whole thing is he likes to be in the dirt. Um, one is uh, B-Dog. So go ahead and guess his, his deal's D-A-W-G. I don't know if you can guess what he's good at. Oh, um, no. It's rapping. He's the rapper. He wears a chain. <laughs> he's a rapping puppy. Great. And, and then there's a, a, a girl. Um, her name is Rosebud. She doesn't have a personality. Her personality is she's the girl. So anyway, <laughs> they, they went from this kind of fun story with a dog that can do cool stuff and, you know, they create little adventures around him to a story where the dogs can talk and are are, like, solving crimes and working together. They go to space. I mean, that's that's where it ends up. They go to space. You've lined up a very, very helpful timeline of seven different films in the Air Buddies series. And I do I do vaguely remember the first Air Bud movie. I believe he does not speak and just plays some basketball. And they're also otherwise just human characters interacting with each other. Like It pretty much all boils down to the one scene where they say there's no rule against the dog playing basketball. That's the whole thing. Yeah. 
like you said, they not only go to space, they go to space pretty early in the run. Like it's first Air Buddies in 2006, where it's just their offspring trying to rescue their pa- rescue the parents, Air Bud and his spouse, Molly, apparently. And then <laughs> from their movie three, Space Buddies, 2009, the buddies tag along for a field trip to the Space Museum and accidentally walk aboard a rocket ship. That's the summary of, like, that's not movie three in any sane franchise. You you really have to wait till you get to space, I think. But they're just like, ah, let's go for it. Movie five, ghosts. Movie seven, superheroes. Let's do it. I don't even know what you're talking about because in my mind, that's scientific progress. Once you teach the dog to play basketball, <laughs> it's going to space. Like, that is, in my mind, that's natural. That's, that's the evolution of uh, science and ideas and... That's, that's just the way the world works. People talk to play basketball. Next thing you know, he's in a rocket. It's because um, you, you you play basketball, you get a college scholarship, study physics and space, and then from there straight to dog NASA. There you go. Yeah, it's a good point. I assume there's been all kinds of changeover behind the scenes of making this stuff, but they just must have decided that. There is money in that well if you just keep going back to this is somehow related to a dog that shot jump shots. You can do anything you want. It's amazing. Yeah, I, I like the it's like there's a writer's room. It's like, well, we had the dog play basketball. What if the dog could do non-sports related activities? And then they were just <laughs> off to the races. Oh, yeah. Once you once you have that reality of dog playing basketball, it can be anything. Yeah, right. Aliens can invade. Uh, gravity can go away. Sure. Let's do it. Actually, and I don't know why my brain relates these, but there's another thing here, and I found this from, um, it's called 22 Beloved Franchises That Completely Went Off the Rails, and it's uh, by Anti-Meme, and uh, collecting a lot of stuff in here. And I didn't know this, but the movie Gladiator, which we all saw right around the turn of the millennium, what a great time, there was almost a sequel called Gladiator 2, and... Maximus dies in the first film. He's the main character and he's killed. I'm sorry for that spoiler for a movie from 2000. And he is dead. He's gone. So then the sequel would follow him into the afterlife, grant him immortality, and put him in the 20th century in America, which is amazing to me. Was Ridley Scott uh, going to be participating in it? Or was it just like uh, Ridley Scott like taps out and then they just get like someone else to come up with whatever the hell this was the story of it and i mean this is all hollywood development stuff so it's a little fuzzy but the story is that there was a full script for gladiator 2 where he fights in the major american wars of the 20th century and works for the pentagon and apparently both russell crowe and ridley scott loved the script but then the studio pulled the plug on it and didn't go forward. So the key talent was he's in. Like, um, he's like Captain America, but it would have been Captain Gladiator. <laughs> Captain Maximus. Oh, right. <laughs> they, had it at, they had that idea so long ago and they could have, it would have worked. It would have been fine because we already did it later. So It is Captain America's backstory. Oh. I never thought of that. <laughs> but what I love is that like, there definitely was a meeting where Russell Crowe was just like, got this script and they're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, Russell, you know the um, the gladiator. He then like ends up in Vietnam or something. And Russell Crowe's like, oh, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. And you know, he's it's he's just you know, <laughs> then calling everyone. He he's like, I want to see the gladiator, you know, in a fighter jet. Like it's and and gladiator won the Oscar, right? Yeah, I believe it won best, best picture. picture. 
which yeah. is a pretty good award, yeah, so, you know? Which is, yeah. And, and what I love is that they made this kind of like, you know, sexed up period piece. And the natural evolution of it is to get the gladiator transcending the laws of death and time. Because in Gladiator, they do a lot of afterlife stuff with, I think he's in a big uh, field of grain or something. And he sees his, his yeah. wife and things like that. <laughs> so they probably figured we can just blow that element of the canon out. And stick him in like Normandy, you know, which is a really big leap, but they felt they could do it. If you find yourself riding through a field of wheat, relax. You are in Elysium and you're already dead. <laughs> My dad says that speech a lot. <laughs> and I, I pulled it up here just now. Gladiator did win five Oscars, including Best Picture and Best Actor. So any any amount that of Oscar is, statues like that is esteemed, and it's crazy to make that kind of sequel out of it. I mean, I guess that's what somebody said. It's crazy to make this kind of sequel. We just won these Oscars, and then they shut it down. Like, maybe that's what happened uh, at the end of the day. Yeah, it does seem like somebody just stepped in, and it, that exact thing happened, yeah. Well, and also, and Christy had pulled out another, it's from the Cracked article, Five Little Known Sequels That Ruined Iconic Stories. And it, it's a sequel to another very, very esteemed film, The Graduate, which I didn't even know yeah. it had something like that. Me neither. And um, and that there's like this enormous gap between the two stories. Like, I don't I don't know a lot about The Graduate other than the movies. So and it's not pulling up for me, the article. But I don't know if the movie was based on a book. And if it was the uh, original writer who wanted to revisit the Robinsons or whoever been whatever his last name is. Yeah, pulling it up here, it was a novel by Charles Webb. And then in 2007, he returned to the characters in a new book. Huge time frame difference <laughs> yeah. there. And, and when he came back to it, like, you know, I, I watched The Graduate a lot. I, I enjoyed that movie. I don't know. It doesn't even, it's not my personality, but for whatever reason, I enjoyed that movie. And... There's a lot to explore there. Like, they could have really talked about, like, what it looks like if that marriage would have succeeded, which you would have thought, no. You would have thought, no, that was not going to be a good uh, family situation. They were not going to stay together. But he says yes. He says they, they stay together. And, like, instead of exploring like, <laughs> the, like, family relationship later, he explores what it would be like if they decided to homeschool and then that's against the law and if the grandmother the person that the son-in-law had had sex with at one point intercedes to use her body to like somehow make her grandchildren's education work so she's supposed to seduce (laughs) somebody to I don't know I can't imagine what his thought process was when he decided this is the path that this family who started in this way would take. They're going to really fight for homeschooling and the grandmother's going to seduce the principal because she has not learned her lesson from 30, 20 years ago or whatever. So altogether different kind of uh, kind of story. And they call it homeschool. <laughs> right. It, it's sort of a left turn into a new generation and new issue that doesn't feel totally related. And it reminds right. me of, <laughs> it reminds me of that action movie trope of this grizzled old commando who's left violence behind, but they need him for one last mission. Like Mrs. Robinson is needed for one last mission, which is really, really weird. Your mother-in-law, we know what you're good at. Let's let's use that to make sure that our child can, can get his education at home. 
Yeah, I, I don't even think most places have that much of a barrier to homeschooling. You can just kind of start doing it, right? Maybe give them some notice or something and then go for it. There's no there's no diplomacy if, needed if of any kind. It, well, if you had written it in the 80s, like in 20, 20 years before, maybe. Um, not, that I don't, not that I think that was on anybody's like, ooh, we need to hear this story about what happens when homeschooling is illegal and the family from the graduate want to get in on it. But no, not in 2007. Casper is a sleep brand that continues to revolutionize its line of products to create an exceptionally comfortable sleep experience one night at a time. With three mattress models, the original Casper, the Wave, and the Essential, Casper mattresses are perfectly designed to soothe and cradle your natural geometry. Not to mention the breathable design helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night, and it's delivered right to your door in a small, how-do-they-do-that sized box with free shipping and returns in the U.S. and Canada. But the best part is you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. After all, you spend one-third of your life sleeping, so you should be comfortable while you do it. Speaking of comfort, I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but I'm sleeping on a Casper and I feel great. It was very, very easy to set up. I'm often, I don't know about you, but I'll get very independent-minded about things around the home. I'll be like, no, I can fix that chandelier, and then, you know, it's like falling on me or something later. My Casper mattress was so easy for just me to deal with. You know, get help if you want to, but it popped right out of the box that was very small and very easy to maneuver, and I haven't had an experience like that with something so large that's also so critical to me having a nice night's sleep every night and getting to be, you know, the me I want to be. So why don't you be the you you want to be in terms of sleep? Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash cracked and using cracked at checkout. That is casper.com slash cracked. Offer code cracked for $50 off your mattress purchase. Terms and conditions apply. You know, hiring for a job used to be pretty hard. Used to have to do a lot of legwork, track some people down, multiple job sites, stacks of resumes, and a confusing review process. But today, hiring can be easy, and you only have to go to one place to get it done. ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter sends your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards, but they don't stop there. They work hard, and with their powerful matching technology, ZipRecruiter scans thousands of resumes to find people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. They come to you. You just get to hang out in, let's say, the Garfield chair that I talked about at the beginning of the show. ZipRecruiter is so effective that 80% of employers get a quality candidate through the site within the first day of using it. And with results like that, it's no wonder that ZipRecruiter is the highest rated hiring site in America. And right now, our listeners can try ZipRecruiter for free at this exclusive web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. That is ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. C-R-A-C-K-E-D. You can read it off the logo, folks. ZipRecruiter.com slash cracked. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. While we're looking at just enormous movies that people would assume do not have sequels, and looking at the movie Casablanca, it's almost a shorthand for a good movie. It's just that big of a film. Mm -hmm. And there have been tons and tons and tons of attempts to make some kind of sequel out of it, and a few of them have happened. They, as soon as 1943... Just right after it won Best Picture, they tried to make a sequel called Brazzaville, which would be based on Rick and Captain Renault going on more adventures. 
And that movie didn't come together because the writer wanted to make it so Rick and Renault were allied spies the entire time in Casablanca, which completely changes the movie. And the studio said, no, we don't want to do that because why are you messing with Casablanca? And from there, there was an attempt to make a TV series in 1955. They also tried to make um, a TV series in 1983. There was um, also a book based on it called Suspects in 1985, which alters the ending of it again. It makes it so Renault and Rick were in love with each other, and it was a homosexual romance between the two of them. And then uh, also Woody Allen made an actual movie called Play It Again, Sam, where the ghost of Humphrey Bogart advises him about dating, which is a very Woody Allen move. Uh, I'm sure some people have seen it. And then um, there's also a sequel novel called As Time Goes By in 1998, There was a Japanese all-female musical review of it put on in 2009. And there's just all these kind of weird attempts to take a pretty singular movie that stands on its own and just somehow keep getting stories out of it. It's crazy. It's like fan fiction. It's like you're obsessed with this really good movie and you want to be a part of it in some way. So you put your stamp on it. Because these are all wildly different interpretations of what... Not not interpretations, because they aren't trying to, like, remake it. They're just, like, wanting to be a part of it in their own way, I guess, is what these look like. Does the story continue officially in any way? Uh, as far as I can tell, it didn't. Like, if it, if it would have happened officially, it would have been that sequel, Brazzaville, which, I guess, good move, naming it after another city. You know, that's a thing. But beyond that, it doesn't totally make sense, I feel like. Well, it's also a strange movie because I often forget that they made Casablanca a World War II movie. Like during World War II, it was not resolved yet. Yeah. And we didn't know how it was going to go. Yeah. So to do that twice, because I'm sure they would have gotten Brazzaville out before it ended, is really bold, I think. That's also just a whole nother layer to it. And while we're looking at sequels to huge movies, because uh, why not? It's fun. Christy had also picked out just the overall process by which Disney, who I believe is behind the Air Buddies entire thing, they also just continue to make home video immediate sequels to their huge theatrical animated movies. And I think they're still doing, I mean, obviously they're still doing it. I just watched Incredibles 2. I think the ones that were the most jarring when they started doing this in, I guess, the early 2000s is probably when it was the big big push is when they took stories that were 50 years old, 60 years old, (laughs) and gave them a sequel. And so like they took these, um, you know, stories that have been laid to rest and were resolved. And, you know, they have been set in stone, like they're almost, I don't know what the right word is, they're, they're our fairy tales, and they're done. And then they gave them new adventures. So, like, the, the big ones are, like, to me that were strange were Bambi because he has a whole father story in Bambi 2. Um, and Cinderella because Cinderella was just, like, she gets married, she goes off, she's done, everything's happy. And then they, like, patch together these little vignettes of what happens to her after she becomes a princess or queen or whatever. And 
it's like uh, you do, I don't want to see that she's struggling with her household chores or, or like struggling with being a princess or resolving her relationship with her stepsisters and that that's what they do and I know that in Cinderella 3 Dave Bell talked about how this one ended up being a really cool almost a sci-fi story like there's a time turning element in this where she like oh. goes back and fixes some things or changes something so it's like a sci-fi story I never adopted to the the sequels where they took the old princesses and gave them new stories. It does seem strange that they can just run with this stuff in kind of a different medium because home video is just a very different experience from the theater, especially back in the VHS days when it wasn't crazy crisp picture or anything like that, you know? Like, it's almost like mm-hmm. they're... I, even as a kid, I felt like they were explicitly saying some of our stories are theater quality and other stories we do are home video quality. So, you know, you'll take what you can get if you're doing the video and and you're watching at your own risk. Anyway, thanks for watching this trailer built into a VHS tape that will always be here. <laughs> that you cannot get away from. And if this is your favorite movie, you will watch this trailer every day for the next, for the whole summer. You're just yeah, stuck yeah. with it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my favorite exception is Kronk's New Groove. I loved, I loved uh, The Emperor's New Groove and I liked oh. Kronk's New Groove too. So those are pretty fun. But those are not like the iconic. We, these stories have been laid to rest and and are part of our fairy princess, fairy tale princesses. They get characters at Disneyland. They're done. That was different to me is when you take these really old ones and resurrect them. Oh, yeah, sure. Because a lot of these are years after the fact, right? Like something like Bambi 2 is Decades. a while yeah. later. Yeah. Because I, I also feel like they jumped on it pretty quickly with some of them, too. I still remember too quickly. discovering... <laughs> Discovering that there was going to be a home video called The Lion King One and a Half, and that really threw my brain as a kid. Like, how, are, how is that the numbering for anything? Which, if people don't remember, The Lion King One and a Half is the events of the original Lion King from Timon and Pumbaa's perspective. So it's also between that and Lion King 2, which I think was direct to home video. So you've got like... A lot of layers clever. of sequeling. Yeah. <laughs> See, I had more forgiveness for those because they were newer movies, I guess, because they were from the 90s. And I, I just was like, you know, we were already watching them on video for the first time. And it was fine. I guess it's like, I guess it'd be like Citizen Kane Part 2 coming out right now would be would be the equivalent <laughs> to me, like to remake Cinderella or remake Bambi or, you know, like these are the animation classics. You can't just you know, two generations later, take up this story and, and rebuild it on with a completely new story. But maybe, maybe I'm just way more emotional about it than I need to be. It's interesting. I, I would say you don't sound emotional, emotional about it. I think there's also that trope of people on the internet being like, this ruined my childhood. And I feel like, <laughs> I feel like I'm mostly able to just compartmentalize it as a separate iteration of the thing I like. And I, oh. It's it's weird. I, I can just kind of put it off in a box. Even even with certain TV shows I like where some seasons are way better than others, I just compartmentalize the other mm-hmm. ones. It's fine. Like, they were just out there, too, and I'll just watch the ones I like. I, I, Alex, I think that's actually, like, a really, like, um, interesting phenomenon. Uh, like, I, knowing the ending to Battlestar Galactica made, going into it, made me enjoy the rest of the series a lot more. Bring up Battlestar, I feel like... There's also a lot of genres of extending these franchises that we probably won't hit today because we're talking about ones that 
start one way and go just completely in a different strange direction. There's also the Battlestar Galactica kind of thing where there was a 70s show and then there was a reboot in the future that was much stronger, I would say. And then there's also looking at this Disney stuff. Disney tends to take these fairy tales and make a home video of it. But also Syriaki picked out that 101 Dalmatians, the author, took it and did a new sequel that kind of picks up right away, but does a whole different thing. Oh, yeah. Um, so most of us are familiar with the general conceit of 101 Dalmatians, which is, uh, you know, Cruella DeVille, who is just like some jerk lady. And that's her, like, you know, impetus in it. Uh there is all of the humans, due to, I guess, some form of alien magic, are put to sleep, including Corella DeVille. She is still around, apparently, um, in, in, the sec- in this book. And the dogs not only develop the ability to fly, they also take over gover- the world <laughs> governments to debate whether or not they should join the alien dog in space because humans are developing nuclear weapons and... It might just be a better idea to go to space with the all-seeing star dog and restart canine civilization there. <laughs> but they decide at the end that uh, they like their humans too much, um, you know, warheads or not, and they stick around. But it is a lot happens. A lot, <laughs> a lot happens. <laughs> it's you know, it's uh, you go from a cra- a fur crazed socialite to. Basically, a hallucination of alien dogs and and dogs in Parliament and so forth. It's um, yeah, they, they definitely went with a different direction. That I, I would actually pay to see that movie. You know, get it get it in IMAX, put it in a planetarium, kind of you know, double header of a uh, you know, Laser Floyd and Hundred One Dalmatians Two Star Dog. I'd be cool with that. Yeah, there's <laughs> there's so much there. So it was a nuclear parable. And also, right. That's what yeah, I was wondering. Yeah. Was he? Were they taking on like, you know, this is their hippie statement? Um, like, like that's just funny too. <laughs> like that's just like this. This child's book author is like, okay, it's been ten years. I really need to talk about nuclear war, and I'm going to use these dogs to do it. But we got to get some space stuff in here because look, we we're about to go to the moon. And I mean, like that's really they just jammed a lot in here. All they need is Vietnam to kind of. <laughs> get Vietnam in here somewhere. <laughs> Perfectly handle the 60s through dogs. Yeah, it's almost like a Banksy about the 60s or something. You know, just some really broad <laughs> message about the thing that they're upset about. Well, and also, I, I almost wish that came out or even somebody made it now because mm-hmm. there's also a phenomenon of these off-the-rails version or, or these new versions. Occasionally, they can kind of supersede the original and not just by being great like i feel like the new battlestar galactica had a lot of the vibe of the original um syriac had picked out another case where these old archie comics right like oh what a what a straightforward tale of just uh, uh middle american kids being kids and then now it's the tv show riverdale which is not an unknown show it's just amazing that it can morph into that whole thing the idea that this, you know, vision of Archie as a kind of like sex fuel romp um, <laughs> uh, is is now known as this like very like lurid, you know, stylized, sexy dr- drama. It's it's totally fascinating. And it's it's such a it's such a like radical shift. I mean, it, in the I, I guess it was the let's see, was it the 60s or 70s in the 
Okie dokie. Uh, in the 70s, what happened was um, Archie mm-hmm. was like praying a lot and resisting Satan and doing a lot of like, you know, doing lots of praying and doing all that business to like Riverdale is so fascinating. It's there is like there's like so much sex, like right off the bat. And like okay. uh, Archie's like doing everyone. He's he's just <laughs> it's also very big on not like sullying Archie as a character. It's like Archie's a stand up guy. He's going to do what's right. It's um. <laughs> It's nuts. I mean, as kids, we used to buy the Archie comics. You just simply read them because you were a kid and like, what the hell did you know about anything? And it was just these like totally stale, like little digests of comics republished from the 1950s. These totally milquetoast, um, you know, comics from the supermarket are, are now this like erotically charged teen drama. Hey, the future is awesome. What can I say? It's really exciting to me, too, that. That can happen with a lot of different franchises. Riverdale is such a peak example to me because I I always understood Archie to be this like apple cheeked guy in a sweater who's just out driving around, mm-hmm. and now he's the coolest guy on Tumblr. It's very exciting. Uh, <laughs> there's also I as a kid I grew up watching a lot of James Bond movies and relatively young too, and I didn't know until I read about it in this cracked article. Um, six ridiculous kid-friendly adaptations of R-rated material, which kind of does the opposite of Archie to Riverdale. It goes from James Bond, where he's having really, you know, really retrograde 1960s sex all the time, and it turns it into James Bond Jr., a 1991 cartoon, which, for one thing, is centered on James Bond's teenage nephew, so he wouldn't be named James Bond Jr. That doesn't make any sense. He is also going on cartoon adventures in the, the pictures of it and also the way the, vil- the villains are done. It's basically a G.I. Joe or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles kind of thing. But with James Bond, like for some reason, Odd Job is in a bunch of Run DMC <laughs> rap stuff with like an interesting fade haircut and good for him. Uh, the character Jaws, who is definitely one of the cartooniest movie characters, has an actual metal jaw. And Dr. No is 10 times more racist. He's green and has a Fu Manchu and doesn't, and these weird shoulder pads, and it doesn't make any sense. I'm glad I didn't see it at the same time as I was watching actual James Bond movies because I think I would have been really, really confused (laughs) as a kid. And and James Bond Jr., yeah, it's, there's, you know, not much to really make him look like. He just like wears a khaki jacket and he, you know, is generically handsome and has, I think he has like a surfer friend and a nerd friend. And um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's all very uh, unwatchable. Because <laughs> <laughs> in, in the films, I feel like it's hard to turn those films into kid entertainment because in the movies, James Bond has no friends. He has like no personal relationships. Yeah. But a kid's cartoon, oh, yeah. they, there has to be a crew of buddies. It has to be how that works. The later ones, they kind of made Judy Dench his friend, but the early ones, he just knows M professionally, and he's met Felix Leiter a couple of times, and that's it. And I love that now he has, like, a surfer buddy. Great. Really fun. Do people surf in England? Is he even in England? Oh, excellent point. I I bet they kind of <laughs> made it vaguely America because that's what cartoons do. But you're right. There's not there's not exactly killer waves off of Brighton. Hard to get. And uh, there's also there's another cartoon here to look at because Chrissy had picked out that old classic, The Flintstones, going into all kinds of crazy directions. I don't I don't understand comics in general. 
And so when there's like this really serious reboot, which is what this is, somebody did the Flintstones as a incredibly serious reboot, um, like where they're having like this existential marriage crisis and Wilma is now exploring art um, like she invented it or something. And, you know, they took something that was basically the honeymooners, but in caveman times and made it adult. And so when, whenever they, whenever somebody does that, I don't understand if it's ironic. I don't understand if I'm supposed to be how I'm supposed to interpret it without laughing because it's the Flintstones, but now they're serious and I don't, I just don't know how to wrap my head around it. Um, and so anytime that one of these kinds of articles shows up on our uh, entries term just shows up on our article, I'm like, I need Syriac to explain to me, (laughs) is this serious or or is this, does this happen all the time? Is this something I'm, you know, just supposed to take for face value? It's like a piece of art that you just kind of enjoy uh, for what it is. Is it speaking to something else? I don't understand it. I think this is definitely one of those scenarios where DC Comics was just like, it's like a what the heck, let's just see if this works kind of situation. Because so a, a few years ago, they basically did a big launch of, I wouldn't call them gritty because it's, you know, they don't want to like have like Scooby-Doo killing someone. But it's definitely like these, <laughs> they relaunched these as comics with like adult themes and adventure and Things like that, and I guess just as a way to, you know, try something new. Because if, you know, I mean, most people, you know, know who the Flintstones are because they've had a vitamin at some point, you know. So why not see if they can, I don't know, like, do something else with it. Well, they Riverdaled it. That's what it is. And it's yeah, just they, like, yes, yes, yeah. And maybe that it works. I wouldn't know if, if this works or not. In the same way that I don't know if Riverdale works or not because I haven't watched it yet. But I know that it's got another season and people are talking about it. So, yeah, why should I? I have nothing to judge here. They did it another time and it works. It's just in comic form. They just tried to make a serious soap opera looking story out of the Flintstones. The moment for like remaking like stuff like that was the early 90s. And it's like, who the hell is the market for it now? Like, <laughs> So I guess I might as well dust off the Flintstones and try something with them. This is in the article Six Beloved Franchises that quietly went insane. Um, And what cracks me up is that Wilma's having a breakdown because she's trying to create art, which, by the way, art was already invented in the Flintstones because I remember they had rock stars coming already. But whatever, she's trying to invent art (laughs) and um, nobody's taking her seriously and she's crying and Fred is trying to comfort her <laughs> and he's really big and bulky like this is in this version of Fred Flintstone he's very muscular and he's kind of like Superman but like a little bit heavier but he's wearing oh, but he he's totally wearing is. like the, an animal pelt with a tie and he that's just that's like where Superman. I lose it <laughs> <laughs> he's still got the tie on over his I don't know what kind of animal pelt that is but it's blue and I somebody drew that yeah and you're right Wilma is trying to invent artistic expression there's dialogue here Um, (laughs) the day I put my handprint on the wall was the day I became a human being the day I meant something and that's in the Flintstones amazing great really fun Uh, I think we've got time for maybe one more here and looking at uh, the franchise the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen 
Um, Siri, I could pick that out. I I understand that franchise to be kind of a mashup of existing Victorian characters, but I had no idea how deep it goes and how far it goes. League of Story Gentlemen started out as a comic actually published by DC, uh, one of their imprints. Alan Moore, who, you know, of many different famous comics, Watchmen and so forth, and Kevin O'Neill, who... Uh, is also, you know, he did a lot of, uh, you know, 2000 AD, kind of uh, the, the publisher Judge Dredd. Uh, and they basically, you know, came up with the idea of like this kind of like Victorian super team of famous characters from literature like Captain Nemo and Jekyll and Hyde and also characters all in the public, you know, on the public domain. So it's you can call these characters, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde or Captain Nemo. And, you know, no one's going to sue you because Robert Louis Stevenson is dead as hell. Um, no offense. May he rest in peace. <laughs> anyway. No offense. <laughs> um, uh, as the years went on, uh, the comic went to a different publisher. Uh, it was, uh, it's been, you know, left DC and it went to a different publisher. And uh, this was also years after the, you know, kind of disastrous Sean Connery movie that uh, most people are familiar with. Uh, and which, you know, followed the plot of the original comics. It's like, oh, it's all the, you know, characters together forming the super team in the, early 1900s and whatnot. But in the intervening years, it has basically become a world where every single fictional thing exists at the same time. And that's kind of like Alan Moore's philosophy at work here a little bit. The comics are still being published. Actually, the final series is, uh, you know, being published as we speak. And, uh, and all these all these series keep going into like present day. And what happened is you have in one of the series, it's revealed that Harry Potter is the Antichrist. Um kind of from uh, various Aleister Crowley-style texts. And the entire Hogwarts school is a shadow cult meant to bring the Antichrist into being, and it goes in a lot of directions. It's uh, The comic is a trip. I I enjoy it. I think it's it's basically like Alan Moore is playing a big game of, like, how many literary illusions can we fit on each page? And the answer is a lot. So... (laughs) It's also so bold that they started with how I understood it, all these Victorian public domain characters, many of them really obscure. Like they take Sean Connery in that movie and he's playing Alan Quatermain, I think is how it's pronounced. I don't even yeah, know Quatermain. how it's yeah, pronounced, yeah. you know? <laughs> and then now they've got not only just up and taken Harry Potter when it's today, and also the writer of it is very active and <laughs> doing stuff <laughs> and uh, made him the Antichrist incredible <laughs> like the the wikia page for it it's just called antichrist and it's about harry potter a boy with hereditary magical abilities and the drawing is him bald and scarred and with plaster over his lightning scar because apparently it's the mark of the beast in this franchise and he's like becoming a giant person ripping a house apart it doesn't make any sense at all and also they don't want to get sued they do not want to get sued so he is wearing a band-aid over his scars because they if you notice he does not look anything like harry potter in in the in the in the comic, they're very oblique that he is Harry Potter. They they actually don't oh, okay. ever refer to him by his name. It's oblique and litigation proof. So oh, that's wise. That's good. Yeah, because and this wiki page says that so the scar is the mark of the beast. His magical abilities are because he's the Antichrist. It's not some sort of wizard muggle thing. And then all of his childhood adventures were staged to boost his confidence 
in order to prepare him to do Antichrist stuff. And so all of his peers and teachers are really just like actors or someone placed by this cult (laughs) to convince him he's capable of great things. Yeah, exactly. There's a sequence when the characters go to Hogwarts years later and it's just all destroyed and you... You see that, like, there's a montage of Harry Potter just going through and killing, like, Ron and Hermione and everything. And it's grim. (laughs) What a horrific comic to make. Amazing. (laughs) Like, they want to sell these, right? They want people to buy them? Oh, boy. It's also a metaphor, you know, it's for, for whatever reason, Alan Moore, I guess, has a bone to pick with the Harry Potter universe and partially, I guess, due to its success and, you know, the this interpretation of Harry Potter as the Antichrist has been read as Alan Moore basically taking a uh, you know shot at the publishing industry and how you have this you know very anchor universe and narrative that is you know means a lot to a bunch of people and it maybe it pushes out you know other stories or something so it's and it becomes a big corporate entity unto itself you know and that's uh, yeah. I think that's him kind of throwing a throwing a insult at the uh, HP universe. That's interesting, too, that he's not just doing it as a gag to entertain himself. There's some kind of satirical component about how culture is created and how all pop culture is marketed and made and monetized. And it kind of brings us back to all of this stuff. Like, are these processes good that turn franchises into completely different things within a few years? Are they bad? Are they just entertaining? I think I try to just see them as fundamentally entertaining whether or not I'm into the creative decisions. Yeah, and I, can't, I can't be angry at something like Harry Potter simply because it's like, you know, J.K. Rowling, you know, was just a writer writing a story and she mm-hmm. had ex- gigantic, you know, life-changing excess, uh, success in, you know, writing these books. And, you know, maybe maybe in later years when you now, we now have the Harry Potter game where uh, for mobile where if you don't pay your... Uh, character is strangled by vines until you give them money. That was a bit of a controversy recently, um, you, where it was basically a um, you basically had to pay more to expedite oh. the sequence of your character getting choked by vines. Yeah, like and freemium. if you did it, you you got to watch your child wizard just get choked by vines for as much time as your magic energy refilled. Good old capitalism. It's everywhere all the time, and sometimes it puts basketball dogs in space. <laughs> Folks, that is the episode for this week. My thanks to Christy Harrison and Syriac Lamar for being as excited about Ridiculous Entertainment as I am. Feels good to be in that zone, you know what I mean? And hey you, there's a zone you can go into called our Food Notes, where you will get to see and hear so many of the things we talked about today. Guys, there are comics panels in there, there are clips in there, there is of course Sexy Garfield R&B in there. Check it out, really explore how weird this stuff gets, because it's a really good time. You know what else is a good time? A live Cracked podcast. Our next Los Angeles one is September 15th at UCB Sunset. It's going to be about TV. It's also going to have some special guests and stuff going on that uh, we'll announce soon. It'll, it'll be a great thing for you. Look out for that and mark your calendars in the meantime. Also, mark down the name The Budos Band. They are the band that provides our theme music. It's called Chicago Falcon. Also, our episode was engineered by Jordan Duffy and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. 
That's right. Social media, a space where I'm sure you can follow every air buddy one way or another. You know, I'll, I'll bet all those kids have Twitter and Instagram and Snapchat. You can probably WhatsApp with the rapping dog for some reason. I, I don't know what's going on. I hope I didn't invent that stuff. Either way, my Twitter account, no air buddies on there, just good old fashioned Snoopy content. At Alex Schmitty is my name on there. Give me a follow. I'm also on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com, which has my show dates, more info about me, and my newsletter. I uh, I don't talk about it a lot, but it is 10 free fun things I found on the internet. I send it about once a month, and I think people would just enjoy it if they checked it out. So there you go. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.